joining us as we unite humanity through stories of hope, connection, and community in the face of the global pandemic. We are all in this together, and we're glad you're here together with us. Thanks for taking a moment to like, subscribe, and follow The Pandemic Show on social media. Thank you for joining us as we transcend time and space to talk racism and privilege with a star. The only guest of The Pandemic Show ever to be on Sesame Street and The Elephant Show, we are in for a unique perspective, a perspective based in experience and time. Thank you so much for joining us. Who are you? Well, uh, I'm, of course, Murray McLaughlin, and I got very, you know, it's a kind of a double-edged sword how things changed from A to B in the pandemic, because before my sister really became seriously ill, she has Alzheimer's. My brother was in an advanced state of dementia. And on March the 10th of 2020, just as the pandemic was rearing its ugly head, I was able to be with him playing a little taped music into his ear, Sinatra and Tony Bennett, all his favorite artists, as he passed away. So I was able to be with him during that time. And and what really struck me and I, and made me really, really think hard was all of those people suddenly who were losing people and couldn't be with them. That was, that was horrible. So, um, you know, the real truth is like, as far as what changes physically or tactically the pandemic has wrought in my life, the, the vast majority of what it is that I do hasn't been terribly affected by it, except for touring. Uh, I suddenly couldn't, you know, I had a, 26 concerts booked that were canceled because all the theaters shut down. Um, but I think what really struck me was that it hurt people. I, I hate to use this term, but it hurt people a lot more who were kind of down the food chain for me, musicians that I might work with or, you know, stagecraft people, lighting techs, transportation people, you know, like just the infrastructure that, allows me to do what I do. I mean, when I'm touring, essentially I'm a small business and I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, I employ a lot of people and those people were suffering a great deal. I mean, one of the reasons that I started conceiving of going back into the studio in the middle of all of this to, to do the hourglass album was to, you know, it was self-serving, but to create some work for my friends who, uh, it was important to me to see that they survived and that they were doing well. You know, it's made me a lot more aware of the people that I, I depend on. And I think I don't, I couldn't care about them more than I do, but uh, it certainly made me aware how important it is to do that. Well, Murray, thank you for sharing that with us and our condolences. It's special that you got to have that moment and be there to support him. And it shows the power of music. And your new album, Hourglass, it is a social commentary. It is a mirror that society needs to look at, especially here in Ontario, where we are. 
the pandemic isn't just COVID-19. The pandemic is income inequality, structural racism, how we treat seniors in long-term care. The pandemic is climate change. It's a pandemic of pandemics, the pandemic of loneliness. But your album is so positive in having these tough talks. I know I've been following the Baden white supremacy debate. Obviously, here at the Pandemic Show, we are actively anti-racist. I'm a proud inhabitant of traditional neutral territory. Let's just move right into this, to our Nardwar the Human Serviette-inspired game. Song titles in the form of a pandemic question. No one's alone on the Pandemic Show. Stories of the pandemic for the people of the pandemic. We're very lucky to be talking with Murray McLaughlin here today. If everyone took a Thompson day, would the world be a better place? I believe that it would. And I will tell you why, because first of all, the genesis of that song is about the painting. Of course, Tom Thompson is an iconic figure in in Canadian art and in Canadian culture. And I think every school kid, certainly of a certain age, would remember seeing that painting on the wall, probably somewhere near the portrait of the Queen. But it's iconic. It's part of our collective consciousness. And I am fortunate to live not far from the Art Gallery of Ontario, where the painting lives when it's not out on the road somewhere. Currently, it's in England, I think. But every time I go down to the Art Gallery of Ontario, I go down and I stand in front of that painting. The West Wind, of course, for those who don't know what I'm talking about. It's huge. It's magnificent. It's powerful. It's emotional. And moreover, it's Canadian. It is the essence of what makes us different from people in the rest of the world. And that thing is that we live at the discretion of the land that we live in. We're like ticks on the back end of a hound. It can shake us off anytime it wants to. And I think that makes us a little bit different in our heads. Where the song comes from is I've experienced that kind of day, you know, being on a rock, watching the wind blast and three and a half foot rolling white cap waves coming down the lake and, you know, having your hair blown back such as it is and hearing the susurration of the wind blasting through the pond. I mean, I've heard, you know, I've been in that day. So the song is kind of about falling through the painting into the world and realizing how much a part of the world and everything in it that you are, that your molecules are the same molecules as the stars and the sun and the moon and everything else and everything that is. What the song ultimately is about, it's about how ephemeral life is. And when you apprehend those moments where you see another living creature, even if it's like a, like I said, like a dragonfly, and you sort of marvel at its life and its ability, and you realize it's alive just like you are, then you apprehend that in that one special moment when it's like time stops, that Life is precious and every moment in it is precious and to be apprehended. And it's also finite. It's a transitory experience. You're here and then you're gone. But you're never really gone because you kind of circulate. Cosmic. (laughs) Well, everything is when you get down to it. It really made me, as I was listening to it on my back deck, watching bees crawling around on some flowers that moments before a hummingbird had been at, coating themselves in the delicious pollen and nectar of spring. I felt like I was having a Thompson day. And I know since I've moved to the country over a decade ago from the city, I feel like that connection and being around the trees and the wildflowers has been good for me. 
I know there's a lot of talk in the popular press about how there is a growing disconnect between people and the land. And that might be the biggest challenge that we're facing of all the challenges is our nature deficit disorder. So I really appreciated a Thompson day. And how important do you think nature is during this pandemic with the added layer of complexity to life? One of the trends people have said across North America and Europe is that that first part of the pandemic and lockdown, they heard nature. So the pandemic seemed to have been a blessing at the beginning in terms of that connection with nature and people becoming more connected to what's around them. But I think I've seen a lot of evidence of what you're describing. I know people that make a regular practice now of going and walking out to the end of this mammoth. It's a man-made construction called the Leslie Street Spit in Toronto, but it's been taken over by wildlife. And you know, a lot of people now, they're out walking because they really can't go anywhere else. So they're experiencing the world in a very tactile and physical way that they really haven't before. And you're right about what your observations are about a nature deficit. I think it's important to maintain your connection with what you come from, with what the, uh, the underpinnings of your life really are, because we are in the process of becoming a species that is so inward looking, is so preoccupied with the satisfaction of the self that we've kind of lost track of the fact that we're actually part of a system. I mean, I could use some really prosaic examples, but I think people recreate themselves in ways that, you know, I'm not, you know, again, I'm not on a soapbox being a preacher here, but I think people have to start considering the decisions they make about what they do a lot more thoughtfully. You know, I mean, you know, when you really look at it, the fact that a gigantic pickup truck is the best-selling vehicle in North America for urbanites, <laughs> and they, they're not like hauling hay bales, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not practical, a lot of the trends we see in our disposable fashion and disposable consumer society before times. The supply chain shortages that we're experiencing now, I wonder if they'll be a disruptor in terms of maybe changing the supply chain to more sustainable types of things, moving back towards the local. It's going to be interesting in the years and decades to come to see how we come out of this pandemic in terms of how we treat the earth. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're on to a, a very important point there. I mean, to get asparagus in January in Toronto has to, so, I mean, that's hardly efficient. So what you're seeing now is in the growing seasons, you're seeing the emergence of a lot of um, local farmers markets. There's one just down the road from me. You're seeing the emergence of uh, vertical farming, of these agricultural efforts that can provide a lot of locally sourced and probably higher quality food without burning 140,000 pounds of kerosene to get it here. Next question, pandemic question in the form of a song title. Pandemic blues. How do we heal the pandemic blues? Well, I think that message is in the song itself. I wrote Pandemic Blues to make people feel a little bit better, a little bit more relaxed, to chill, to not think this is like the end of days, because this has happened before. I mean, I'm a great reader and a student of history, and most people who read history understand that many of the things that were happening today, well, here's a couple, uh, some examples. 1918, the First World War has just finished. What follows on the heels of the, of the First World War is the Spanish flu. 
killed millions and millions of people, young, vital, healthy people, crashed the economy of Europe and crashed a lot of the economy of North America. Young men would go out to work in the fields in the morning and they'd be dead by dinner time. Exactly. But it also was a period of time that the unrest that was created with all of this sociological upheaval saw the rise of anti-immigration riots, the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan, the entrenchment and real uh, meaningful entrenchment of the Jim Crow laws and voter suppression in the United States, for instance. All of these, uh, and eventually the rise of a fairly large uh, national socialist contingent in North America as well. So does it sound familiar? (laughs) History seems to be repeating itself, except now we've been much more successful with our sanitation and our knowledge of science to get these vaccines out quickly. People are complaining, but I think we've had it as good as it could be. This has been a major disruption for all of us. From the top to the bottom, it's being felt worse by people at the bottom. Well, I think that the people who probably fare worst in this particular instance, and by the way, you're right, what you know, what researchers have done in the way of developing things like mRNA vaccines is, is utterly remarkable, like the speed and uh, effectiveness with which they've been able to accomplish that is unprecedented, it's fabulous. That being said, I've heard a lot of quetching and complaining, and, uh, and I'm sure you have too. And I think the people who fare worst in circumstances like this in modern times is they, people who have a bit of a sense of entitlement. I mean, pardon my French, but they don't really effing know what tough is. You know, I could say what my parents lived through. They lived they were married in 27, lived through the Depression and the Second World War. That's tough. You know, what's tough for us? Oh, my goodness. It's really like hard to get takeout. Your album addresses privilege and it is a it is an uncomfortable conversation at times. I'm thankful for my privilege during the pandemic. What do you think of the one percent? The origins of that particular song go back a long way with me. But you hit on a lot of different things right there. So there's something you said that I want to just address, which is it took a long time for you know our government in Ontario, for instance, and people to realize that all of those folks who are you know sorting packages at Amazon or keeping the transportation system or the people that have to go out and go to work every day were experiencing the spread of this virus much more. They're packed into smaller apartments. There may be new Canadian families. They're living together in close quarters. They elevators, the buildings like Thorncliffe Park. I mean, the hot spots were basically the, you know, the poorest and, and hardest working segment of society and usually the most racialized segment of society. And it took a long time. Thank the good Lord. We finally realized that and concentrated the vaccination campaign in those areas. And that was exactly the right thing to do and should continue with second shots. Now on the 1%, what do I think of the 1%? Not much, tell you the truth. Powerful lyrics, some take it all, live behind a fence. Change is going to come, change is going to come. And that's what made me feel like, are we gonna get on top of this situation? Are we going to implement more income tax, tax the rich types of situations? Like the move over the last 20, 30 years to move to consumption-based taxes, it hasn't got us ahead. We have all these people rabid about less tax, less tax, but less tax, less service. And it seems now 
we just had a horrible tragedy. Somebody went crazy and drove their car into a, into a family. It's been labeled Islamophobia. Like people are snapping and people need support. But when we're going into a, when we have got a government mindset of slash and burn social programs and identity politics pit each person against the other, I, I feel like your song gave me hope that these things are going to change and we're going to be able to come together all together. Well, as I mentioned, that song has its roots in, in a period long before this time. I don't know if you remember or not, but there was a thing that happened called the Occupy Wall Street movement. And that was like the first shot of this. And they were generally ridiculed by the media as being you know, kind of lacking focus, not being able to articulate why they were there. And I looked at that and I went, I know exactly why those people are there. They're terrified. They're looking at irresponsible multinational corporations that really have no homage to any state government, that really have no checks and balances on them, moving jobs around to the cheapest place where they can exploit labor or get away with environmental errors. <laughs> they're looking at being disenfranchised. They're looking at suddenly that their children might have a poorer future than they do for the first time. They're looking at a lot of things and they can't really... They're just angry and they're, and they're scared. And a lot of those people have morphed into angry and scared in a really, really bad way because, you know, I'm an old martial artist and my belief is all bad things come from fear. You make Bingo. people afraid, bad things happen. When people are afraid for their future, then they start going, oh, well, you know, look at those people who just came. Who's inviting those people into the country who are stealing our jobs and they don't speak English or they do this or they do that. And suddenly, you know, you, your economic fears morph into racial tensions and it's all joined together. We are lucky to have you here today on the Pandemic Show talking with us about these this sensitive, sensitive talk of privilege and racism and inequality. Can you speak to your powerful song, I Live on a White Cloud? Sure. Like all of the world, <laughs> when George Floyd was publicly murdered by a police officer, I was appalled, and revolted, angered, but also, again, being a student of history and a follower of the experiment from the end of slavery <laughs> through the Jim Crow laws to the civil rights movement to now, and not just the wrongs done to black people in North America, but also to Japanese people in North America or Chinese people in North America or indigenous people in North America. And it all really kind of boils down to the same thing. It is a group of people have decided that some people are inferior and not as intelligent, not like them, don't share the religion, and therefore are there to be either exploited or kept down out of the process by which people get ahead economically or spiritually or politically. And, you know, my feeling is somewhere along the line, all the people that decided to do that made the cardinal sin. I think they understood that what they were doing was wrong, but they did it anyway. They did it for self-serving reasons. And I think that a lot of folks have to look really deep in their hearts and go, well, if I recognize that something is wrong, there's no equivocating that. It's wrong. It's wrong. And we shouldn't do that. You know, it's either wrong or it's not wrong. And if it's wrong, we shouldn't do that. So, yeah, we, we've had truth and now we need reconciliation. We need to make right. We need to make it right. Now, like 
in my history, long before the George Floyd murder occurred, I worked with, I remember particularly a really terrific guy I worked with at one point. I won't bother with naming him. He was a very well, you know, well-to-do, successful black man. One day uh, he was a little bit late for something that we were doing. He apologized when he got there. He said, yeah, I was a DWB. And I said, what's that? This is a long time ago. I said, DWB, what's that? And he said, and he looked at me like I had two heads. He said, you don't know? I said, no. Driving while black. Yeah. Driving while black. And so he explained to me what exactly that meant. And and I couldn't believe it. I mean, this is Canada. <laughs> you know, this is Canada. And uh, there's a different, very different standard for this man than there was for me, a white person who, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, can I see your identification, sir, blah, blah, blah. But no, I don't have to keep my hands on the wheel or occasionally have a, a hand on the sidearm. So but that was then. And I think now things are evolving to the point where you're seeing police officers and, you know, South Asian police officers and Asian police officers and black police. That's good. That is the way it should be. All our institutions, political, otherwise, sociological, should reflect who we are. Moreover, the idea that there's fundamentally, you know, we all share 99.99% of our DNA. The differences that exist between people are entirely superficial. And somehow the notion that that isn't the case has gained some traction. And, excuse me, again, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Murray McLaughlin, thank you for joining us today to have an important conversation around race and privilege. And I am looking forward, Hourglass, with these amazing songs that will get us thinking. They're politically astute, yet socially refined. Well, thank you, Dave. I appreciate that very much. What do you envision the world being like as we move through the pandemic? We're now in the vaccine diplomacy stage of the pandemic. The major superpowers are distributing vaccines to their sphere of influence. Cuba's got five vaccines now. It looks like we're coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic, but all the other pandemics exist. Your thoughtful lyrics, analyzing history, helping us to understand the present. What do you think we're in for? I don't think we're in for the status quo. I don't (laughs) think that things are going to be the same. I think a lot of people have been, as they would by any major sociological global event, people have had the the chance to re-examine what they do. I was looking at the business section of the Globe and Mail today, and here is a big article about oil producers who are going like, okay, we've re- we've read the tea leaves. Now we're going to get into hydrogen and green. I mean, that's like ExxonMobil. Well, so- similar to the uh, legalization of marijuana and high-ranking people who used to be against it are now running the company's profiting off. Well, you know, I- I've always believed that the decriminalization of drugs was, you know, front and center on the social agenda, you know, basically uh, criminalizing people who have a dependency while creating an environment where organized criminal gangs can prosper is a really stupid strategy. Bingo. It's been going on for really a long time. But, you know, I think that we should treat this as a public health problem, not as a criminal problem, regardless of the nature of the drug. And the opioid The opioid pandemic has also flared up during, there's so many nuances of the pandemic. It makes me think 
the aftertimes, it makes me think of creator story I heard from White Owl Ancestry uh, near New Dundee and their sugar bush that at one point the maple, the sugar maple just oozed syrup and the creator watered it down so people would understand the benefit of hard work and collecting the sap, which is only 3% sugar and 97% water, and then having to boil it down and do all that work for that goodness. I think that's a parallel example to what we're going to need to do coming out of this pandemic to make sure we reach equality, justice for all. In a very whimsical way, Dave, I mean, if the lesson was we all got to work harder, we'd be uh, we'd be eating birch syrup. <laughs> and I'm using it as a metaphor that we have to work harder for a common for a common yeah yeah a common right. system where of equality and justice for all. Murray McLaughlin, a pleasure and honor of which we, the people of the pandemic, are sensible. Thank you for having and showing us the way to have a conversation around racism and privilege through an analysis of history. Well, Dave. The last comment I would have, and again, that song, I Live on a White Cloud, the message in that song is me me looking inside. I got to turn my eyeballs around and see if any of that shit is in me. And I think that's what people have to do. They have to look around inside their own heads and see if there's if any of that poison is in them. And if they find it, find out who put it there, because somebody did. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Yeah, bingo. Thanks for listening to The Pandemic Show. We're all in this together and we're glad you're here together with us. Physically distance with us at pandemishow.com. Be a part of our community by subscribing to and sharing The Pandemic Show. Thanks for taking a minute to email an episode, share a link, or promote us on social media. Pandemic Show is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. Stories from the pandemic for the people of the pandemic. Do you have an interesting pandemic story and want to share? Email us at pandemishow at gmail.com. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to Giant Value for singing us in and letting us know everything is going to be all right. No one is alone at the pandemic show.